Hi, I'm Connie Loises. And this is Alex Gove. And this is Strictly VC Download. Hi, everybody. It's been quite a week. The markets have continued to drift downwards, and talk of a recession seems to be growing louder with every passing day. There was an interesting article today in the New York Times about how big tech is well-positioned to thrive during this downturn. Author Trip Mickle points to the huge cash reserves of FANG companies like Microsoft, Apple, and Google, and cites economists who believe that these companies will use these funds to expand their dominance in their respective markets. As Michael Cusimano, deputy dean of MIT's Sloan School of Management, puts it, the big will get bigger and the poor will get poorer. That's the way network effects work. Google might not be feeling quite so sanguine. As the Wall Street Journal reported yesterday, a bipartisan group of senators has just introduced a bill that would force Google to give up its stranglehold on the online advertising business. The legislation would prohibit companies processing more than $20 billion in digital ad transactions annually from participating in more than one part of the digital advertising ecosystem. If enacted, this bill would also require Meta to divest portions of its advertising business. Still, one suspects that companies like Google and Meta will always find an out. Despite the fact that they are a convenient punching bag for both parties, they have an unending supply of lawyers and lobbyists. We will, of course, be here to cover this story and its implications for the startup economy. We are nothing if not your humble servant. But tonight, we beg your patience. The Warriors just won a second game against the Mavs, and we are ready to celebrate. So without further ado, we take you to Connie's interview with Sam Rosenblum, a partner with the eponymous Katie Hahn in Hahn Ventures, one of the hottest crypto VCs out there. Hahn, who recently left her position as a partner at Andreessen Horowitz, and Rosenblum just closed on a new $1.5 billion fund, and they are excited to put that money to work. But first, a word from our sponsor. As a founder, you know the headaches of securing startup capital better than anybody. But what if there was an easier way? Seedinvest enables founders to find their next investors and biggest evangelists through equity crowdfunding, unleashing the force of nature that is its community of over 600,000 everyday angel investors. Read some of Seedinvest's portfolio success stories or apply for a raise today at go.seedinvest.com VC. That's go.seedinvest.com slash VC. And now our interview with Sam Rosenblum of Han Ventures. This was our first time talking with Sam and we enjoyed it. Two quick notes. You will hear me ask if the firm is a registered investment advisor. Rosenblum apparently misspoke during our interview, saying that Han Ventures is not an IRA, that it is a vanilla exempt venture fund. But after our interview, the firm wrote us to clarify that Han Ventures is currently an exempt RIA and that it intends to register within the year. I also asked if Katie Hahn maintained a seat on the board of the music NFT company Royal, a buzzy startup that raised money late last year by Andreessen Horowitz when Katie was co-leading its crypto investing team. 
Sam believed that she was, but the firm let us know afterward that that is no longer the case. Also, unrelated, you'll hear our dog Brody in the background at times. This happens not infrequently when he looks out the door and sees a rabbit or a turkey or a crow or a squirrel or a deer or a delivery person. It's exhausting, but there's not a lot we can do about the little monster. And now our chat with Sam. Sam, it is so great to meet you. For our listeners who don't know, I'm just going to go through your LinkedIn profile here. You are an UCLA graduate who spent a year as an M&A specialist at the Department of Justice right out of school in 2010, which is so interesting. Then you worked briefly for a Seattle-based consulting outfit, spent a year at Visa, landed at Coinbase in 2014, which was two years after Coinbase was founded as a director of business development. Then you went on to Polychain Capital, which is a crypto fund that listeners may know was started by the first employee of Coinbase, Olaf Carlson Wee. Then you were recruited five months ago to Han Ventures by Katie. That is quite a run. <laughs> Can you take us way back, Sam, to even before college and just tell us a little bit about where you grew up and maybe what you imagined doing for a career? Because I saw that you have a Bachelor of Arts degree, but it looks like you went right into the business world. Yes, that is the background <laughs> so far. Let's see. I grew up in Southern California and then ultimately, as you pointed out, went to UCLA. So I, I pretty much spent the first portion of my life outdoors in the sun, playing sports and hanging out with friends. Thing. So maybe your quintessential Southern California upbringing. In terms of knowing what I wanted to do when, when I grew up, so to speak, I mean, obviously, uh, crypto was not a thing at that point. And I did not necessarily know that I wanted to go work at a tech startup or work as a venture investor. I think ultimately, I always had a bit of a, a draw or bent towards international or global impacts and been fortunate over time to just find myself in roles that have that involved. At Visa, I was in the global strategy group for the network processing business, which is one of the, the largest global networks for processing payments. And I got to spend a lot of time in that role, thinking about different global markets, being pretty well for when, when I first started looking into Bitcoin and thinking about the global implications there. But yeah, that, that's the origin of maybe the, the interest in global payments and even just maybe more efficient global networks, broadly speaking. And then, yeah, very fortunately landed as an early team member at Coinbase in 2014. Did you reach out about that job or were you recruited by Coinbase? I was, yeah. And very fortunately before joining Coinbase. So again, I was in that role at Visa and I was really the first of two or three people in all of Visa to catch an interest in Bitcoin. And a couple of us would get together and have coffee during the week and talk about Bitcoin. And so ultimately of that group, a couple of us ended up making the move over to Coinbase. Coinbase at the time was just very clearly the highest caliber startup in, in San Francisco in the Bitcoin space. So if you were interested in the space in 2014 and wanted to go work on it as your day job, it was a very clear top option. So yeah, fortunately, they reached out to me in the summer of 2014 and went through the infamous work trial process there. You moonlight more or less for a week with them, which I think for me ended up being like an 80 hour over the course of four and a half days. But it's a great way to get to know the team and see how you fit into the company. And of course, luckily, it was a match on both sides. That's terrific. And so obviously you met and he mm -hmm. recruited you to be a VC. Yeah. So Olaf and I worked together for years at Coinbase. For listeners, Olaf was the first employee at Coinbase and then ultimately 
became the founder of Polychain in 2016, which is one of the earliest crypto funds. So yeah, we had worked together when I was leading our international expansion into certain geographies and Olaf at the time was head of risk. So we'd go and, and turn on these new markets together. And yeah, it was, it was really a lot of fun. Oh, so he he had left in 2016. I was at Coinbase until beginning of 2019. And from when I joined to when I left, Coinbase was about a 30-person company to then about a 1,000-person company. And I think Olaf and, and actually there were a couple other Coinbase alums at Polychain as well. I think they, they just knew that that wasn't necessarily the, the right sized environment for me anymore. And so that started with a late night hangout at the Polychain office that, that eventually evolved uh, into joining them full time. That's great. And there's so much crossover in that world. I mean, Andreessen Horowitz is an investor in Polychain. Katie's on the board of Coinbase. Katie was at the DOJ. Just wondering, at what point did you cross paths with Katie, leading to her asking you to join her as her first deal lead? Katie and I first met in 2017 when she joined the Coinbase board. And to your point, especially in the earlier days, the industry was so small mm-hmm. that there ended up being a lot of natural overlap. Coinbase and Andreessen Horowitz and Union Square Ventures and others are just these institutions that have been around for a long time. There's, of course, a lot of friendships made along the way. So Katie and I had met in 2017, didn't keep in in particularly close touch after I left Coinbase. But then in November of last year, I actually set out to start my own venture fund. Oh, interesting. Crypto venture fund. And so I was working on that. And of course, Katie and I have quite a few friends in common. And so some of these people... I had been prepping with and brainstorming with in terms of how to pitch the fund and I was going out to fundraise. And so I think Katie caught wind that I was in process of that and then reached out to me, told me what she was thinking about. Uh, and I ended up flying out to Menlo Park for a couple of days and, and we jammed together and walked a bunch of laps around the Stanford dish and decided it was a good time to team up. And so the rest is recent history. Interesting. So you hadn't made any deals yet. You were just about to do your fundraising and you were based in LA still at the time? Actually in a a little ski town called Sun Valley, which is where uh, my wife and I moved during COVID. Oh, great. And are you still there or have you moved to the Bay Area? So we're uh, still based in Sun Valley. We travel a a decent amount. So coming to you live from New York at the moment, and then I'll be spending some time in the Bay Area next week. Great, great. And so Sam, tell me a little bit about what you guys are building inside of Han Venture. So you are the first deal lead. I mean, she's assembled quite an interesting team there, including Chris Lahane. How many employees are there at this point? Yeah, so we're now 12 people total. And the deal team is currently three people. And I think we'll probably keep the whole firm pretty lean and nimble. So the idea would be for, for the time being, just to, to keep to probably a similar size. We'll add a couple more folks to the deal team over the course of this year, but really not much more than that. So you can imagine Han Ventures as a 15 to 20 person firm at steady state. Okay. And when you say three, you mean you and Katie and one other person? Yeah. So today it's Katie, myself, and then Chris Ahn, who just joined us as a partner about a month ago. And where did Chris come from? He spent the last few years as a partner at Index Ventures, uh, which is a traditional venture tech fund. And prior to that, he was a director of finance and ops at GitHub. 
Okay. Interesting. I, I missed that. That's great. Congratulations. I mean, also just congratulations on closing a $1.5 billion fund two months before everything went dramatically on sale. Well, I'm sure that's that just seems like very ideal timing. And obviously I do want to talk about this very volatile time for crypto startups and currencies, but I do want to just talk a little bit again about how you work. This is a probably dumb question, but the fund itself is traditional in that this is actual dollars that were committed and and are being called down. None of the commitments were in the form of crypto. You don't have a Pantera capital that said, here's some Bitcoin in exchange for a stake fund. Yeah. The strategy is obviously very crypto forward, but the structure is quite vanilla. We're a a typical venture structure. We we ended up deciding to close on 1.5 billion total. And that's across two funds. One vehicle is our $500 million early stage fund, and the other is our $1 billion acceleration fund for slightly later stage stuff beyond the scope of the early stage fund. And both of these are traditional venture structure. So we have the $1.5 billion in total commitments. And then as we find deals that we want to deploy capital into, we draw down on those commitments. So we will call a portion of the committed capital to invest and go from there. So no, all commitments are in the form of of, uh, good old-fashioned U.S. dollars, and we draw down upon them as we find more investments to make. Got it. I I keep wondering when we're going to see VCs evolving more into, I don't know, a crypto way themselves. But also, can you share a little bit more about who your backers are? I've seen that Mark Andreessen and Chris Dixon are LPs. Are there other individuals or firms that you can mention that have backed the firm? Yeah. So most of our LPs are what you call institutions. And so we span quite a few categories here from sovereign wealth funds to university endowments, to pension plans, to hospital systems, pretty broad in terms of the spectrum of institutional pools of capital. We do also have some individual LPs, frankly, mostly just friends of Katie or mine or friends of the firm, so to speak. So so some of the folks that you mentioned who I think have publicly been named as, as LPs. Great. Well, I'm not surprised that the fund closed with so much in capital commitments. I had people reaching out to me, a reporter, on how they could get to Katie and write the firm a check when she was known to be fundraising. So in terms of these two segments that you mentioned, the $500 million for early stage companies and protocols and the billion dollars for acceleration or later stage projects, can you maybe just drill into that a little bit further? What would you deem a later stage project? And also, how would you fund a later stage project? Because sometimes these are equity plus token deals. Sometimes they're just equity. Yeah, that's super important. So first and foremost, Han Ventures is structure agnostic. So we want to back the best projects in crypto and Web3. And we'll do that through equity deals, through token deals, through equity with the token warrant. There's several combinations of different types of of tools and structures used, and and we're open to any of those out of both of the funds. The key distinction between the two is, of course, stage in the the form of how far along the project is in its development, what usage there is. There is a distinction, like the the idea of stage, it's interesting, maybe looks a little bit different than in traditional tech venture in that it actually depends what layer of the technology stack you're you're looking at because the size can be very different, right? Historically, if you're looking at a venture play, you're looking at something that a, a big outcome would be to you know have a company you, you invest in become a, a billion or multi-billion dollar company. And um, of course, that that's true of certain companies in the crypto space that are higher up in that tech stack. But as you get lower and lower, 
you're actually talking about these networks and these can be layer one protocols used for a variety of things. But these networks, when you think of what is a, a home run outcome, rather than thinking in the billions of dollars, you're actually thinking in the trillions of dollars. So when we think of how to define stage for, for something in that category, you do have to take into account ultimately what is the terminal size should this become a big winner. So those are some of the things that we look at. I would say in broad strokes, you could imagine the early stage fund being fund for seed through series B and the acceleration fund being series B and beyond category. But of course, how you define that depends on quite a few factors. Yeah, I see a lot of these deals and they often don't have that traditional, if always shifting nomenclature of series A, series B, it'll just say so-and-so raised this amount of money, including your own two deals. So I I know that you've funded at least two companies recently, Zora, a two-year-old LA-based Ethereum marketplace for buying, selling, and curating NFTs that raised $50 million in new funding. Was that an acceleration deal or was that an early stage deal? Yeah, so Zora is, is a super interesting one and one that, yeah, we, we did just announce, uh, I think a week or so ago that we led and um, really strong co-founding team. And then ultimately now that the team that they've built up, they're, uh, I think, around 35 people now. And, and one of my favorite things about them is that they're very experimental. They love to dig in a new direction, learn from that, and, and then pivot accordingly. So they've been around for a couple of years, like you mentioned, and they've had a couple of pretty important pivots along the way. And to your point, it is one where it's kind of funny to define what type of round it is. And Zora is a great example of this. You can't really give it the typical classification of Series A, Series B, whatever. It ends up just being a little bit more loosely defined. And they've got some pretty exciting things to, to announce in the near future about the direction that they're headed in. Had they raised funding previously? Yeah, it's a great group on the cap table of investors that we work with a lot and know well. Okay. And so that's how you found that deal? I actually have known all of the Zora co-founders since probably 2018 or so. And the whole co-founding team all actually came from Coinbase. So these were people that I knew from working together at Coinbase. Okay, great, great, great. I think founders are just interested in the sense of how to get your attention. And then tell me a little bit about Highlight, which I just read about yesterday. Highlight is a 14-month-old Bay Area-based outfit that says it lets creators design and mint NFTs and create a community around them. What drew you to this particular company? Yeah, it's actually really fun examples to talk about back-to-back because they're both so awesome and they are so different in terms of their origin stories and their approach to the space. So it maybe speaks to the spectrum of founders that we are looking to go out and find and ultimately back. So whereas the Zora guys have all been from the Coinbase days, they've been working in crypto for a while, the Highlight team is equally impressive, but just coming from the Web2 world, coming from places like Square or now Block and DoorDash and other very well-designed, well-produced Web2 products and services. These guys are are very community-oriented. And ultimately, what they wanted to do is set out to enable people who are not already super deep crypto engineers to ultimately enable communities with Web3 tools. And so it's a a no-code platform for doing just that. And they too actually have some pretty exciting announcements coming up in terms of some of the the communities that are about to launch using the Highlight platform. But anyway, two really cool examples that are quite distinct from one another, 
both in terms of what they're setting out to accomplish and, and the group of people they've pulled together. And, and two, that we're both so excited to have gotten to back. That's great. And so it sounds like based on this very limited data sample, you're tracking a lot of Web2 operators, founders who are moving into this Web3 world. Is, is that accurate? I mean, yeah, we'll be doing both. We are equally open to, to backing founders who have worked in crypto for a decade or, or maybe they've worked in crypto for a year. What we really care about is their commitment to what they're building and then their their unique insights and intuitions around exactly why they want to build it. Mm-hmm. The cool thing is, Katie and I, we've been in the space long enough that we have pretty strong intuition around both the concepts or ideas that, that are being built, but then also around the, the types of people that it takes to build them. So it's really fun getting to pull from founders with, like again, broad variety of backgrounds that that we think for various reasons are uniquely suited to build the thing they're doing. That's great. And also, Sam, there's so much white space, so to speak, in what you're doing. And and so I'd seen another company yesterday called Co-Create that sounded a lot to me like Highlight. It's a three-month-old NFT minting company that just raised $25 million in seed funding led by Andreessen Horowitz. I just wondered, did you see that company? And relatedly, would you fund two NFT minting companies or is there too great a chance that there would be a conflict of interest? I mean, are you thinking about conflict of interest in the same way that people have historically? Yeah. Yeah. So that's a actually really important question for crypto venture specifically, maybe to back up in, in traditional tech and, and maybe what we'll call web two, you had all of the underlying layers of the tech stack, so to speak set up over the course of actually several decades. So these are things like TCPIP and then HTTP, SMTP, et cetera. There's a dozen or so internet protocols that we all use every day. And those protocols were developed over the last few decades leading up to 2000. And ultimately, once they were created, they more or less stayed the same. SMTP is the same today as it was 20 years ago. So the general Web2 landscape is one in which a founder or a startup, they they have a very clear set of premises in terms of what they're building on top of. And then the, the unique thing that they're setting out to do in crypto, it's actually almost the inverse of that, where every single layer of the tech stack is evolving in parallel. The most basic element to the crypto tech stack is the idea of decentralized consensus. And even today, there, there's this constant evolution of types of decentralized consensus or consensus mechanisms. So when you have truly every building block still evolving, that tends to lend itself to founders and startups that probably will have to maybe if not pivot, at least take into account a lot of new information over the course of their startup journey. So ultimately you might have two companies that start as to your point as like two NFT minting platforms that end up going in, in two extremely different directions, which in this case, I think NFTs as a concept is, is actually thought of quite narrowly today because mm. people think of JPEGs or PFPs or something. NFTs just simply means non-fungible token, right? So it's literally any unique digital media that's provably ownable online, but without a gatekeeper or database keeper saying who owns what. So personally, I think there's going to be an explosion in terms of the, the types of NFTs mm-hmm. and really any form of digital media is fair game to become NFTs. So maybe from a Web2 analog, 
it's like saying digital media creator or something like that. So like, of course, we'll, we'll end up backing, I think, a lot of different companies or projects that are doing something that has to do with digital media. We do take the idea of conflicts seriously, and, and we do want to make sure that we are being really good partners to our portfolio founders. So we would not want to put that in jeopardy. But certainly, I think what we've already seen is you have founders starting in a similar neighborhood of an idea that end up at times even building ultimately at different layers of the crypto tech stack. So there's quite a bit of flexibility in the direction things have gone. Yeah, interesting. Interesting. Talking about digital media and different kinds of NFTs, and obviously, I, I mean, I completely agree that we're only scratching the surface here. But one thing that Katie, one of her last deals, maybe the last deal she did for Anderson Horowitz was the NFT music rights startup Royal, which raised $55 million led by the firm back in November. Does Han Ventures have a stake in that company? Yes. So you're exactly right. That was uh, a 16Z led deal where Katie joined the board as part of that deal. So Katie is still on the board uh, of Royals today, but it is not a Han Ventures portfolio company at the moment. Is that an area that's still of interest to you? And because she's on the board and I'm just, I actually don't think I realized she was on the board, but because she is on the board, does that make it trickier for you to invest in another NFT music rights startup? Or would you potentially just jump into a later round for the same company? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I think all options still open there. Digitally managed royalties and, and on-chain rights mm-hmm. are super interesting. Also a really challenging category, right? It's a, it's a very complex space. I would presume that there'll be quite a few really talented founders in that general category and probably experimenting with various different approaches in terms of the markets they're trying to serve and how they serve them. So yeah, certainly a, a market that we will continue to, to take a look at. Sam, also just speaking of her board seats, including OpenSea, I had an interesting conversation a few months ago, two months ago with Sarah Tavel of Benchmark, who I don't know if you've ever, ever had a chance to meet, but she does a little bit of investing for them. Actually, she said that Katie had introduced her to the idea of Chainalysis or had mentioned Chainalysis and, and that mm-hmm. Benchmark's investment in that company. But she was saying that there's this bifurcation that she sees coming that people conflate crypto with Web3 and that decentralization isn't really an end in itself anymore. She mentioned OpenSea and So Rare, one of their companies that just struck a big deal with uh, Major League Baseball yesterday, are actually centralized companies that are built on a decentralized infrastructure. And so I'm just wondering if you agree that that's how we should be looking at them. People maybe are over-indexing on the word decentralization. These are really not completely decentralized entities. Yeah, that's a great distinction to make. And and it's an important topic. The idea of crypto and Web3, certainly at the core of that concept is this thought of decentralization. I think a a lot of people maybe have been less thoughtful in in where that ends up mattering and being important. Mm -hmm. Platforms will and should exist for certain uses. Mm -hmm. The important thing when it comes to decentralization in the crypto tech stack is that platforms do not have the ability to quote unquote lock in their users, not to pick on any one Web2 company, but Mm -hmm. you think of some of these social networks where every action you've taken, every photo you've uploaded, your literal social graph, your network of friends and family is all preserved and managed by a central gatekeeper. And Mm -hmm. then there's no way to exit that information that's super valuable that you as the end user have 
produced and it's valuable to you as an end user today, it's only able to be accessed and used through whatever centralized platform you've developed it on. The idea in crypto is sure you you can have a, a centralized platform where you develop that content, but then in this example, something like your social graph, you can actually leave the platform and take your social graph with you. And that's because these things are all being built on underlying open infrastructure. So mm-hmm. that's the really important distinction. I think at the, the end user touch point, it makes a ton of sense. You'll continue to see centralized platforms providing great product experiences that users love. Mm-hmm. The difference is users will now have the freedom and flexibility to offboard from that platform, but preserve, it, again, in this analogy, the, the social graph that they've developed. Great. Because I think there was so much confusion, including earlier this year with Jack Dorsey and Anderson Horowitz battling back and forth about who owns what. So Sam, I also wanted to talk about obviously the crypto collapse of the last week or two, which has wiped out as of this morning, $400 billion in market value from cryptocurrencies, including Bitcoin and Ethereum. What are your thoughts on what's happening out there right now? Yeah. Yeah. Really, really big week in, in crypto and web three. I don't have a crystal ball, but I think we can use this week as a, a marker in time of this next market cycle. And I think ultimately we have seen these before. Again, I, I've been working in the space since 2014 and I joined Coinbase in a similar moment in time to where we are today, this week in this current market cycle, which is you're talking about a time where you probably have a three year or so slog forward of having to be heads down and building and maybe not having the, the the euphoria that we've felt over the last year or so in the space. So it, it's a really unique week and moment in time and, and life experience for a lot of people building in the space. I'm not going to lie, crypto bear markets can be really hard on, on people for a lot of reasons, obviously financially being an obvious one, but also just psychologically, emotionally, it can be a really challenging time. It's maybe going to affect everyone individually slightly differently. But I think for the most part, for all of those challenges that I just enumerated, a thing that has historically been the silver lining is a lot of the best projects in crypto are born in moments like this. You go back a couple cycles ago and you have the huge Bitcoin rise in late 2013, then ultimately followed very shortly thereafter by a crash in early or late 2013 and then early 2014 continued to slide. Mm-hmm. And then of course you have Ethereum. The Ethereum pre-sale was in, I think it was June of 2014. So that played out again in, in the 2017 and 18 cycle where you had late 2017 peak euphoria followed by a crash and, and drag in 2018. And then in 2018, you of course had some amazing projects like Uniswap and DYDX could come out of that that were founded right in that period in 2022 and quite literally maybe in, in the next several weeks and months, you're probably going to have some new startups and, and new projects created in crypto that three or four years from now, we, we look back at and go, wow, that was born out of this last crypto winter. So that is really the silver lining and the opportunity. And of course, as a crypto venture fund, it's our job to help identify who those those founders are and, and what teams and ideas to really support and hopefully partner with through this cycle that can, can be challenging for a whole bunch of reasons. Sam, you are uh, set up as a registered investment advisor. 
we are not. We are a, a vanilla uh, exempt venture fund. Oh, that's so interesting. Why is that? I, I'm, I am not our GC, so he would be the best person to talk through the, the distinctions. But in my understanding, we'll, of course, remain open to becoming an RIA down the road. But based on the types of LPs that we have, we had the ability to just remain exempt. So yeah, for, for the time being, we are an exempt advisor. And in the future, we'll, of course, you know continue to evaluate whether that ever needs to change. And, and if it does, we can approach that at the appropriate time. Got it. You know, I was wondering because I was just thinking you and Katie obviously know Coinbase very well. Coinbase seems like it's on sale right now. Kathy Wood just invested $3 million in it. And I was wondering if, since you do have a lot of money at your disposal that you've not invested yet, if you are thinking about taking stakes in any publicly traded companies like Coinbase, Robinhood is a little afield, but is that yeah. something you would do or have done? Or Well, first, let me say that I am personally a holder of uh, coin. And I forget who tweeted the, yesterday or the day before that it, it seemed like a generational buying opportunity for normal people who don't have necessarily access to amazing tech startup early stage deals to be able to invest in Coinbase less than 2x the, the 2018 valuation from, from the Series E. So yeah, I tend to agree with that personally. And again, I, I am a personal holder of a Coinbase stock and certainly would be bullish that this week is a, a pretty special buying opportunity there. Obviously, people should do the research they need to do to make independent financial decisions, but I, I remain bullish on Coinbase personally. As a fund, we're not focused on the public equity markets, really. We generally are focused on the private startup deals. And then we do have the ability to purchase tokens off of the open market or crypto assets off of the open market. So yeah, we, we have the ability to invest in both private and public instruments. And to date, we've focused on private equity, private tokens, and, and public tokens. And I understand because you're doing tokens that the deals are a little bit different, but how many different tokens or deals have you done so far? We've only heard about the two, but I'm guessing there's more happening. Yeah, we've done, I would say, a dozen or so deals at this point, and that does you know span a variety of different deal structures or asset types. We've now led three of those rounds and then participated in the remainder. And we're in a really nice position here. We were able to raise the funds at the beginning of the year and now find ourselves in a position where we will get to deploy the majority of our capital into a market that seemingly will lack maybe some of the euphoria and inflated valuations that we've seen over the last year or two. So generally speaking, our job as investors is, of course, to go identify the founders who are really going to be committed and able to execute on what they set out to do. And I think the the state of the market that we now find ourselves in is one that, frankly, sets an even higher quality bar for the founders that are going to be sticking around for the next few years. So generally, that will be an even stronger filter for us. And are you seeing changes in what founders expect now at the early stages? I mean, so much money rushed into this industry in the first half of this year, I think maybe like $13 billion. And Katie was nice enough to come to an event that I hosted back in November. And we talked a little bit about changing terms, how earlier on, it was easier, I guess, for Andreessen Horowitz to get discounts on tokens, plus these equity deals. And then at some point, 
a lot of founders, because they had more options, maybe were pushing back a little bit on the equity and, and selling more tokens so to, as to not dilute their equity. I'm just wondering, in, in traditional deals, we see more structure, more deal terms changing. How does it work with the types of startups that you're seeing? And are you seeing a shift in their expectations? The answer to that, I suppose, will be revealed in, in the months to come. But I think at a high level, maybe what, what my expectation would be here is would be the downturn in the public markets, broadly speaking, even outside of crypto, mm-hmm. is a data point, right? That venture investors are looking at. And when you see a company like Coinbase that makes pretty serious revenue and, and is operated profitably at a fairly low market cap, it is an important data point as we look at later stage private investments. Because mm-hmm. of course, generally when you're making a later stage private investment, you expect it to become a public company in the years ahead. So it, it is a data point that I think trickles down at the later stage first, and, and then maybe eventually ends up impacting the earlier stages. So right now, this is a few days old. The early indications I've seen of that change you refer to have been at the the later stage private rounds. I I think seed and series A so far have been a bit insulated, but again, we're we're a couple days deep into this. And I, I would imagine as the overall sentiment cools to the extent that's what happens, then yeah, I think probably valuations do come down to some extent. But we have a very long-term point of view here, right? We're a venture fund, not a hedge fund. We're doing this on a 10-year time horizon rather than an intraday time horizon. So that's generally my point of view there. Sure. Sam, it's probably maybe early to ask this, but I just was wondering if there are any funds that are in trouble. I'd read an information story today noting that Paradigm's portfolio is down, obviously, right now. But Coinbase Ventures, too, it's a corporate venture fund. This company was worth... 62 billion right now, I think it's 15 billion. So I would think inevitably their uh, venture arm would have to slow down the pace a little bit. Are you seeing anything like that yet? Or is it again, just way too soon to, to say? I think it is too soon to say. I do think whenever you have a moment in time, like a, a day, like we had earlier this week, mm-hmm. I think a lot of folks do like to take a, a pause and you want to stand still for a minute and see the landscape around you and, and make sure you, you're on steady ground, so to speak. So I think the the pause is a potentially a very short thing. Like mm-hmm. literally just this week, you had the feeling of everything ground to a halt for a day. Yeah. And now things are already feeling back to normal. It feels like the sun rose the next day. Everyone then went about their work again. Mm-hmm. Potentially people will will deploy at a bit of a slower pace and obviously somewhat maybe notoriously over the last couple of years, a, a lot of venture funds, not even within crypto, but a lot of venture funds broadly were deploying much faster than their stated deployment window or mm-hmm. schedule. And this was actually something that we really emphasized in, in our fundraise to our LPs that we were going to stay very principled and have a longer deployment period than what had become the market standard, you're just now seeing the, the reason for that, which is things have been a little bit euphoric over the last 18 months in the space. And we wanted to make sure that we had some idea of maybe just history rhyming in the crypto cycles and some idea of maybe what to expect after euphoria. And, and I think now we're, we're here. So I think we certainly were taking a little bit of a, a slower, steady approach to initial 
capital deployment because we were waiting for a bit of a change. And I think that change is now here and people will slow down their their deployment a little bit now and, and take a look around and, and see what the impact is to valuations. Sam, I know I've got to let you go in a second. There's already this widespread perception that NFTs are for a very small subset of moneyed buyers with cash to burn. We saw this board ape yacht club. On the other hand, you've got Americans struggling to pay their bills. I'm just wondering how you think this downturn, even if it's short-lived, impacts that picture. You're depending on people embracing a lot of this stuff going forward. And as you said, NFTs will look a lot different than they do today. Does it make it harder for quote unquote normals to get excited about anything related to digital assets? What, what do you think is going to change people's perception and get more people, not just founders, but consumers excited about this brave new world? Honestly, one of the coolest parts of crypto and web three is it's this big experiment in incentive alignment. And for any network, whether that's a layer one, whether that's even a a network of um, NFT holders that that hold the same collection of NFT, for any network, the network needs to to be valuable in in some way to the participants in order to persist. And then, of course, the famous concept now of network effects, where if there is a value prop there and it is able to attract more and more users of the network, then the more users there are, the more valuable the network becomes. And that's been a core underlying theme of crypto broadly. But when you think about this iteration of Web3 that we're in presently and that we've been in again over the last year or two, it does feel very different. It feels more social, more cultural, more grassroots. And I think for the NFT mint type of projects that are really going for like the the quick fundraise, and then we'll see what happens later. Hmm. I, I do think, to your point, that's maybe more attractive to a certain type of, of end user. I think what's really interesting, and honestly, what's going to be very interesting now in maybe more of a, a crypto winter type scenario is the people that are hanging around both as builders and as end users hmm. are people that are maybe more principled in their interests. And I think NFTs as a broad category really have the ability to be powerful tools for grassroots movements, grassroots communities. So to go back to your question, I I actually think it will be the opposite. I think the the normal person that is not necessarily buying in because they have cash to burn, Mm -hmm. I think it's the type of person who maybe is earning their way in. Maybe they're already part of some community that they already add value to, and now they actually have a way to have some financial gain from the value they're already adding to a community. That to me is where it gets a little more interesting and ultimately lends itself a little bit more to the world that I I hope we're all a part of creating here in the crypto and web three space. Last question, Sam, just because I'm curious about it for other reasons. Any thoughts about this move by Sam Bakeman fried buying into Robinhood? Do you think he's <laughs> to buy Robinhood or diversify or what, what were your thoughts when you saw that news yesterday? Yeah, well, I, I certainly don't have any behind the scenes insights into, into how he's thinking about it. Certainly a very remarkable and interesting move. Crypto has been a tremendous source of wealth creation for oftentimes younger, maybe more creative types of people. And it is going to be really interesting to see the impact that that has on the world outside of the crypto industry. And that that can come in many forms, but just outright buying up shares of a, of a company is a really interesting way to see that take shape. I don't have any unique insights on maybe what he may be up to or 
or his motives there, but certainly remarkable and and maybe even something that we can expect to see more and more of vis-a-vis Elon and Twitter and and other maybe broadly similar opportunities for for companies that ultimately are are of course important in the world. Sure, sure. No, I just thought it was so interesting. And again, especially in the context of Elon potentially buying Twitter. Sam, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. So nice to connect with you. I would love to stay in touch and hear about many more of your deals as you're getting ready to announce them and hopefully before you're ready to announce them. (laughs) Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Connie. Hi guys, thank you so much for listening to this week's Strictly VC download. We hope to see you next week, and thank you for tuning in to this week's episode. This has been Connie Loisis, Alex Gove, and most importantly, Natty Gove. (laughs) Peace out, amigos.